Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So here's something to help us launch into today's topic. Um, I just want you to think about this. Think about your parents' behavior. Your parents' behavior. Not their advice that they gave to you, but their behavior. That determined whether or not you would want to be like them. Um, or, or even with them when, when you were old enough to choose for yourself. Think about that. It was your parents' behavior, not their advice, not even their parenting skills uh, that, that determine or not, whether or not if, if you want to be with them or like, like them. It was how they behaved towards you. And maybe it was how they behaved towards each other. It was what they did. It, it, it wasn't what they required. Again, it was their behavior, not their parenting skills that determine the trajectory of your relationship with your parents. And so, and this should give us a moment to pause, chances are your behavior, not your advice, will determine whether or not your children want to be like you and even with you when they're old enough to choose for themselves. Your behavior will determine whether or not your children will, want, will even want to be with you when they're old enough to decide. I mean, it, for, for, if you're a parent of young children right now, that is a little scary, isn't it? Now, similarly, your, your parents' behavior, and think about this, your parents' behavior determine how much respect you had for your parents. And respect, this, this is important, this respect creates influence. Respect creates influence. If there's no respect, there's no influence. And odds are the same will be true for you and your children. If you want influence with your children later, and trust me, you will. You will want influence with your kids later in life. Then you must maintain their respect now. And the way that you maintain their respect is how you behave. And so we'll get to more on that in just a bit. We're in part two of this series that we've called Parenting in the 21st Century. If you're a parent, if you're about to be a parent, if you're a, uh, maybe a grandparent, if you're helping another parent parent, if you hope to maybe parent one day, um, then it, or it, it, you're, uh, it, this is, it's actually, uh, this series is actually for anybody who feels the weight and responsibility of equipping an infant, a child, uh, a teenager, or a student for life. And those of us who, who are really engaged at any level in uh, helping another human being grow up. And we, we realized pretty quickly that just because, you know, we had a parent, it doesn't really mean that we know anything about parenting. And just because we were a kid once doesn't mean we know anything about raising one any more than having surgery, you know, prepares you for surgery, right? And so last week, we, we just began by kind of connecting two, what, what some might consider two very uncomfortable dots, the dots between marriage and parenting. And we discussed the tension between what's real and what's ideal, like what's really happening in life versus the ideal uh, scenario or situation. And then we explored the way that Jesus kind of navigated between those two tensions. He never dumbed down truth to make people feel better about themselves, and, and he was always kind of pointing to an ideal way to live your life, or he was always inspiring people towards that particular ideal. He pointed to the ideal, and he inspired people toward it, but at the same time, he never uh, dumbed down 
uh, or turn down the grace when people fell short of the ideal. And oddly enough, people who fell short of the ideal actually liked Jesus, and he liked them back, even though they knew that they were not really anything like him. And uh, in fact, the only group that Jesus didn't seem to like were those people who held up the ideal but did nothing to help the, the, the people who fell short of the ideal. In fact, on one occasion, a group of religious people came to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, what you're saying is it's really kind of hurting our feelings. And Jesus isn't, isn't having any of that. He, here's what he said to them. He said, woe to you. <clears throat> and all I know is you don't really ever want to be on the other side of a woe to you from Jesus. He said, woe to you because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. In other words, he was saying, you religious people, you weigh people down with the ideal, but you're not doing anything to help them navigate what's really going on in their lives, the realities of life. But Jesus was different. He pointed towards and inspired people towards an ideal while helping people to navigate what's really going on in the, in the middle of their lives, right in front of them, what was real. In fact, Jesus' sandals were firmly planted in, the, in what was real, but he continually pointed to the ideal. And as we said last week, Jesus was all grace and all truth all the time. So that's where we started. And now if we're, we're talking about parenting, and if you've read much of the Bible, you know that when, it, that when it comes to good examples of family and when it comes to good examples of parenting, there virtually are none in the Bible to be found. In fact, when it comes to examples of real family dysfunction, the Bible is your go-to source for that. It, it, it's full of family dysfunction. In fact, apparently even Jesus didn't get along with his own siblings until after the resurrection. And, and then th there's like this collective, oh, well, that explains some things about Brother Jesus, right? Um, but in, in, in terms of, of learning anything about parenting, even from the story of Jesus, this, the story of Jesus isn't that helpful, but Jesus and the authors of the New Testament pointed a way forward for all of us, and specifically, I think, pointed a way forward for parents. And while Jesus never talked about parenting directly, he laid the foundation for New Testament parenting when he laid the foundation for New Testament behavior. Did I mention that behavior will determine whether or not your children want to be like you or even with you when they grow up? Anyway, Jesus laid the foundation for his followers' behavior when he issued the new covenant command. And we, this is one of the things that we talk about all the time here at Cross Lane. He called it his new command. He said this, a new command I give to you. He said, really, this is not to be added to the existing commands that already exist for us. His new command was designed to really replace all of those old commands. And as we've discussed before, the Apostle Paul referred to this all-encompassing command as the law of Christ, the law of Christ, which is to love others as Jesus has loved us. Now, I, I just believe that following Jesus will make you a better parent because at, at the core of being a Jesus follower is an ethic of others first, an ethic of selflessness. And nothing, let's, let's face it, at least this has been true in my uh, parenting journey, nothing surfaces our self-centeredness and our selfishness quicker and fiercer than raising another human being. A human being that comes into the world with one agenda 
the same that, the way that we came into this world with one agenda, and that is, what's in it for me? And I want it my way. And if I can't get it my way, then I'm going to get in your way, and I'm going to make your life miserable. So think about it. From day one, uh, the stage is set for this classic clash of wills. And it's a clash of wills that, that has the potential to bring out the worst in us, the fear in us, and the, the insecurity in us, and the anger in us. And, and if we're really honest, it, it, it can bring out the ugly in us. In fact, I just think that as a parent, some, the most shame that I've ever felt uh, in my life as an adult related to my self-centered, you know, where in the world did that response come from in response to something that my kids had done? And here's the thing, it, it is in the eventual conflict of wills associated with parenting that the core ethic and value system of Jesus actually becomes more relevant than ever because insecurity and anger and fear. Well, what are those? Those are all manifestations of self-preservation, really, and, and reputation preservation on our part, both of which fuel the very behaviors that can drive a wedge in between us and our children. Behaviors that cause us to lose influence when they're old enough for us to have lost control. In fact, one of the reasons it's so much easier for us to look at other people and know how they should be raising their kids is that their kids' behavior don't reflect back to us, right? So it's easy to look at someone else and say, why aren't they doing that with their kids? It's our kids' behavior that points directly back to us. And our response, and this is so important, our response to that says a great deal about who and what we are most concerned with. And when we get this right, when we get it right, when we are able to keep our ego and our pride in check, we are able to respond out of concern for our kids rather than a response to how our kids' behavior reflects back to us. And our response has the potential to create not only teachable moments in life, but what I would call defining moments in the life of your children. And I'll give you an example of this. And now, I didn't realize this at the time that it was happening, but this was a defining moment in my life for, in terms of my understanding as a kid, in terms of where I stood in relationship to my mother's desire to protect her reputation. And now this is important, and I think you guys will agree with this. We should all want to protect our reputation, right? We, we should be concerned about our reputation. Um, my mom was concerned about her reputation as I'm concerned about mine, and, and, I, and I'm sure you are concerned about yours as well. But our reputations are important, but, and this bumps into another competing value, our children are important as well, right? These are both values, protecting my reputation and valuing my kids. These are both things that we value, and in life, we're constantly prioritizing our values, and our children are watching how we do this, and they're experiencing how we prioritize our values. So uh, I was in the eighth grade at Chauncey Rose, and I had a, uh, an English teacher named Mr. Pezzavento. Uh, he let us call him Mr. Pez, because as you know, eighth grader, we're pretty, pretty dumb, and it's hard to say the name correctly sometimes. So we just called him Pez for short, Mr. Pez. And uh, Mr. I, it's, it was in Pezzavento's class that I learned a very important story about the importance of reputation. And again, it took, took me some years to figure it out. But um, Mr. Pezzavento was a different kind of a guy. 
uh, he was an older gentleman, and I, I, I think he had probably some kind of a military background because that, he just kind of ran his classroom in a, in a military kind of way. And he, he was different from all the other teachers because if you were talking out of turn, he would look at you and point, shut up you, shut up you, stifle, stifle. And no other teacher talked like that, but that was Pez's thing. And, and so we, you know, as kids kind of laughed at that and poked a little bit of fun at him for that. But um, for me, in middle school, I was, if, I was a bit of a cut-up, a class clown, if I didn't enjoy the subject or I didn't get along with the teacher. Well, Pez and I didn't get along too well, and so I was a class clown. Uh, I was always getting in trouble. And um, one particular day, we were to be working quietly at our desks. And so you guys remember how classrooms are set up. All the desks are facing towards the, the teacher's desk. And I was sitting over here, second row from the right. And I was actually being good today. I was actually sitting quietly doing my work. And the boy next to me and the boy in front of him started talking. And eventually, Pez looks up, hears the talking coming from my general direction, and says, Persh, out in the hall. And I'm like, whoa, no, not doing it. So now I've disobeyed the teacher twice, he thinks. He says, Persh, out in the hall. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Persh, last chance, out in the hall. But I didn't do anything, and I actually was innocent. I was sitting, I was being good that particular day, but my, I had a bad reputation, right? And so he gets up from his desk, hits the intercom button, calls the dean, Mr. McDonald, up to the classroom, who promptly arrives and removes Mr. Persh from the classroom. Takes me down to the, his office, and he explains to me that I've got a choice to make. I can get whacked as a punishment, which... Uh, I did get whacked a few times in school, and I'm a pretty firm believer that that should still happen um, today. Uh, or I could get suspended for two days from school for my behavior. So I'm upset because I'm innocent, right? And I, they, they make me call my mom and explain to my mom what's going on. And in that phone conversation, my mom was very calm and very loving. I knew, I, once I explained to her, I knew she believed me. Um, but it didn't matter because I had a bad reputation and I've disobeyed the teacher enough times in the past that he, it was easy for him to point a finger at me. And I took the suspension, if you're wondering. I was not going to let him spank me for something that I didn't do. If I earned it, I was like, okay, give me the, give me the whooping. But um, in this particular case, I'm like, nope, I'll take the suspension. And what I learned that in that story is, now my mom knew I was telling the truth and she let me choose the punishment handed down from the school and in that moment she wasn't concerned about what the faculty at that school thought about her or her parenting style or her kids or my reputation or any of that because she didn't put her reputation first in that she was concerned for me she was in my corner right and and before I go back to what what Jesus had to say one little, more little ancillary lesson that, that related to this particular story I, I mentioned that my mom in that moment, she put me first and, and put me first ahead of her reputation. But the thing that, that mom and pop never did, and there were, I have four brothers, so there are five boys growing up in our house. My parents never allowed me or my brothers to control the family dynamic by placing us in the center. And this is really, really important. Um, it's, this is something that a lot of, of parents miss, especially first-time parents. One of the best 
pieces of advice I could give you is this. You you were already a family before you had children. Amen? Right? Your children are simply a welcome addition to what something that already existed. And, And this is so important because, let's face it, the gravitational pull is for the child or for children to become the center of the family. And that is a mistake. They are welcome additions to the nucleus that was already created when you and your spouse got married. They're welcome additions. Don't make them the main act, okay? So, back to where we started. As it turns out, the ruby red slippers of parenting, the secret of parenting is actually embedded into Jesus' new covenant command. The command that's, that's fueled by a value system of check your ego at the door, just like Jesus did. In fact, this is so interesting. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or leveraged for his own benefit, right? So if Jesus didn't do it, then we shouldn't do it either. And clearly Jesus kept his ego in, in, in check, and, and he had every excuse not to. He was God. But anyway, his, his is a value system, a, a system of others first, of sacrificial love, sometimes of tough love. Sometimes it was, hey, if you hate me, so be it. I still love you. I will, I will not do anything for you if it's not good for you because I love you. But the challenge is, as I pointed out, is that when Jesus issued his new covenant command, he wasn't specifically talking to parents. But fortunately, the Apostle Paul comes along a few years later, and he kind of gives us some handles to hang on to um, in tying all the, these scriptures together. He gives us some applications, some specific things that we can do. Basically, Paul's message was this. He, he, he's, he says, here's what Jesus' brand of love looks like in the, in the real world, in real relationships. Here's how love behaves. Here's how love behaves under pressure. Here's how love behaves at home. Here's how love behaves when you're raising your children. Paul supplies his readers in us today with some handles in all of his letters. If you read through the epistles of Paul, um, you in fact, of all Paul's one another statements, you get a lot of statements that are one another's, you know, encourage one another, carry one another's burdens, um, submit to one another, forgive one another. Th- these are all simply applications of Jesus' new covenant command But Paul's most famous explanation of what Jesus' brand of love looks like and how it it behaves is also, I think, his most instructive uh, for parents. His most detailed description of what Jesus' brand of love looks like uh, comes from a pretty famous passage of Scripture in Corinthians. It was probably read at most of your weddings. It comes from the love chapter in 1 Corinthians, um, Paul wrote this letter to Christians who were living in the Greek city of Corinth. And for the remainder of our time today, what we're going to do is focus our attention on just three words from this, from this instruction, this, this letter, this practical teaching that Paul gives about the law of Christ. Three words that just summarize one facet of how love behaves and how love should behave at home. And here it is. You're familiar with this. Paul writes, love is, and again, this is not just any brand of love. This is the brand of love that Jesus' followers are commanded to follow. Even his parent followers, step-parent followers, grandparent followers, all of the above. After all, you love your son and your, your daughter, right? 
So here it is. Paul says, love is patient. That's where he starts. Love is patient. And we're like, well, Paul, why did you have to start with that one? You know, and how did you know that we needed to start with that one? Like first time parents have a tendency to move faster than their child. Uh, as a new parent, uh, especially when, you, you know, when your kids start walking, they're toddlers, and, and you're starting to give them more responsibility. I, I was always on my kids to move faster. Clean your room up faster. Come on, we got to get through the grocery store. Pick up your feet. Let's go. I was always encouraging them. Come on, you got to keep up, right? Um, but at some point, I, as the parent, had to learn patience, I had to stop. I had to slow down. I had to learn to move at someone else's pace. That's what love required of me as a parent because love isn't pushy. It's patient. It's patient. And honestly, whenever I read this verse or think about this verse, I always think of this picture. So this is a picture of Lori's dad, Papa, working in the yard with my two children when they were obviously quite young. And I think a couple things when, when I see this picture. I think, number one, grandparents are way more patient than parents. Amen? Grandparents are way patient. And the second thing I think is what happens, if you think about it, what happens when we refuse to move at another person's pace? Well, if you're Papa on this picture and he goes at his own pace, he's got two kids that are hanging on for dear life to the wheelbarrow dragging behind right because papa's gonna he's gonna be able to get the yard work done a whole lot faster if he doesn't have two little kids slowing him down but he's patient and he's moving at their pace so when we refuse to move at another person's pace and and i think this is paul's point here love chooses to move at the other person's pace rather than requiring that person to move at ours and the reason this is so hard is because patience isn't natural for us, right? Your natural pace is natural. But here's Paul's point. Since God moved at our pace, we are to do the same thing for others in our life. We are to do the same thing for our children. If not, what happens? Literally, what happens? Think about it. If we insist on moving at our own pace, what happens is we separate ourselves from that person. Right? Papal, I mean, eventually they're, they're hanging on for dear life because Papal's moving at a pace. He can, he can walk twice as fast as them at his normal pace. And then he's dragging two kids, and eventually they're just going to let go. And now there's some separation that happens there. So there's separation that can happen physically when we're walking, but the separation can also happen emotionally and relationally. It, when we push someone beyond their capacity, uh, we can separate, we can frustrate. It's interesting to me that the only specific thing, and this is really pretty amazing, the only specific thing that Paul says to, par- to parents about parenting pertains to this dynamic. And he, re- it, 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 he directs it at no surprise to fathers in a different letter. Here's what he writes in Colossians. Paul says, hey, hey fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not embitter or frustrate your children. Don't provoke them. Don't stir them up. Don't insist on winning. Don't insist on outsmarting or outtalking. Don't push them too hard. Don't move too fast. He says, if you do, here's the end result. You will be separated from your, from your kids. They'll be discouraged and they'll be disheartened. They'll eventually just lose motivation and they'll stop because they can't keep up with you. Paul, 
How did you know? This is what we would need to understand. And, and, and how interesting and yet maybe not surprising that he didn't in, in address this to moms and dads. Just, just me. Just to fathers. Love is patient, fathers. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and I understand because I, I was tempted to think some of the same thing here. Um, that you're thinking, but Ryan, okay, look, Ryan, that's great. I'm glad that stuff's in the Bible, but if we don't push our kids, if we don't expect more of them than they expect of themselves, if we don't ensure that they, they, they reach maximum potential, then, then they may turn out to, which I, you know, I would just say, turn out to what? Like, in, in fact, I'm, I'll, I'll just go ahead and finish the sentence for you. Then they may, they may not turn out the way that you want them to turn out. They may not become what you want them to become. And so let's just pause and think about this for a moment. Is, is that really what you want for your kids? Like, wouldn't it be better to discover what they were born to do and then facilitate that? That's what great parents do. I've never met a father, I'm sure one exists somewhere, but I've never met a father who, who looked back over his life and his relationship with his kids and said, man, I wish I was harder on those kids. Now, I, I've met plenty of fathers who have little to no relationship with their uh, adult children because they were so insistent um, that their kids become what they failed to become themselves or because they felt like their kids were going to fail to become what, what you know, the adults had become in their life. And so inspire your kids, of course. Motivate your kids, of course. Push to the point of exhaustion and frustration, no. Compare and shame, no. Because parents, that's about you. That's not about them. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. Besides, this, this might help. Do you know what the number one predictor of relational and professional success is? The, the number one predictor of not just professional success. And again, as parents, we can sometimes get hyper-focused on, well, my kids grow up and be successful. We want them to do better than we did. So, man, we just attack that, that, that professional success aspect. But the number one predictor of both relational and professional success is self-awareness. And it's a close cousin to emotional intelligence, EQ, which, which results in personal security as opposed to insecurity. Right? And, and so the number one contributing factor to, is to a person's security is their emotional awareness, their home life. Now, I've heard some great advice that I'm going to pass along to you, and this would have definitely applied to me as a young man graduating high school. I had no idea what I wanted to do with myself at that time in life, and uh, I, I, I learned this at, at some point, and I'm just going to pass it on to you. If you're a, the parent of a child and you ever at one point, you're going you're to have to have a conversation with your kids and kind of you know, let them know that you love them and support them. This is a pretty good way to have it, I think. Um, so... You, you, you would say to your kids, look, whatever you want to do with your life, I'll support you as a parent, right? I'll, I'll use my influence to help you in whatever way I can. But if, you're, if, if they're struggling to have it figured out, if they don't know exactly, but until you figure it out, what you want to do with your life, will you trust me to point you in a direction so that you go into college or you go into trade school or you just enter the, the workforce with some sort of direction? 
And look, the moment that you really figure out what you want to do, all bets are off. I'll support you in whatever, in whatever you want to do. But will you at least take my advice right now while you don't really know and let me direct you in where you're going? Let me help point you in a direction. And for, for us, so with our two kids, we had two different scenarios. With my daughter, Abby, um, she was really pretty easy. She, she knew for a long time, she said, I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a veterinarian. For years and years and years, she said that growing up. She got into high school, and we said, okay, let's, we need to, if you're serious about this, let's get you some experience at a, at a, at a vet clinic. So we took her up to a local uh, vet clinic and asked if she could get some volunteer hours, and they, they said, yeah, that'd be great. And she got a behind-the-scenes look at, at the, the world of veterinarians, and after a short time, she decided, nope, that's not what I want to do which is perfect, right? So we're, you're, we're just helping her along the way. And she, she shifted gears slightly and said, I think I want to be a nurse. And then so she graduated high school and she went to college and learned to be a nurse, is graduated, is now a nurse, and she saves people's lives every day. It's awesome. Super proud of her. And uh, so that was pretty easy as a parent because she kind of knew. She kind of had it figured out from a, from a pretty early age. And then with Noah, he was a little bit more like me. Graduating high school, he... He was like, I don't really know for sure, but I think because I'm good at math, maybe engineering, which he gets that bug honestly. My dad w was an engineer, and he's really good with that kind of stuff. And so maybe engineering, and he did a year, his freshman year at ISU, and we got to enroll him in the next year, and he was like, Dad, Mom, uh, that's not what I want to do. I've done enough of it to know that's not what I want to do. Okay. Okay. Well, what do you want to do? And so, again, he decided that he wanted to work with his hands, and he, he, he thought he might like to work construction. And we're like, okay, well, we know some people that can help uh, kind of point you in, that, in, in a general direction and get you started down that path. W what we didn't do is say, Noah, no, you can't do that. You're a loser. You're not going to be anybody if you, if you take that path. That's not what we did. We didn't do that because it's not our responsibility as his parents to decide what he does with his life. Our responsibility as mom and dad were to, to put our weight behind whatever he decides to do with his life, right? It's because it's his life. And, and honestly, that was the deal. For Lori and I, we'd seen other great parents do this, and, and we, we had heard this advice at some point in our lives about uh, you know, setting your kids up for success in that way. And it's, it's, the, it's, it's how we wanted to parent. Love is patient. Love is patient. Love is not pushy. Love does not exasperate. Love doesn't, doesn't drive a wedge. Love doesn't allow ego and reputation to dictate the tone or the pace of the relationship. Love picks up on someone else's natural pace and rhythm and, and adjusts their pace and their rhythm accordingly out of love because of, uh, because, and because of patience maintains influence in that relationship all along the way love is patient right so a couple of questions to get you thinking this morning as we wrap up today who feels rushed by you who feels rushed by you who, who feels an unnecessary or maybe even an unhealthy pressure when you walk into the room when you come in through the front door of the house 
Who are you driving away in your effort to bring out their best? And what would it look like? And you don't have to commit to this today. Just think about this. What would it look like? What would it require from you to, for you to adjust your pace to their pace? And, and I know for somebody out there today that that maybe scares you to death. Like, but I just, I just want to tell you what, what you should fear more. I, I think you should fear losing a relationship with your child more than adjusting your pace. What would it take? What would it look like to adjust your pace to theirs? That's what Jesus' brand of love requires from you. It requires us to tame our pride. It requires us to protect, protect our children rather than trying to protect our reputations. And then there's this. If, you're, if you live long enough, you're going to slow down and you're going to need those around you as you get up to a certain age. You're going to need other people to adjust their pace to your new pace and it's going to require patience from those that you love the most and those that I hope you love the most. So I, I just hope you raise patient children, children who, who've seen what it looks like from you, that you've modeled this, who've seen what it looks like to adjust your pace to the pace of those that they love. Uh, if you would, this morning, pray with me as we wrap this up. Father God, I'm, I'm so thankful for you and, and your son Jesus and how um, Jesus, is, he came and changed everything. Uh, but as he, as he modeled this new law, this new ethic of 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 loving others the way that he loved us. Uh, I, I just, um, I'm thankful for that in, in my own life. I'm thankful for great parents who, who um, modeled some really pretty healthy um, parenting skills, but that stuff's not intuitive. We're not born with that information, so we need, we need to learn it along the way. And for all of us in the room that are uh, Rubbing elbows with kids, parenting kids, grandparenting kids, teaching kids in schools and um, so in so many ways. I just pray for the strength and the wisdom to, to get this right. Kids desperately need adults who are getting this right. God, and, and so we're thankful for grace and forgiveness when we, when we mess up and get it wrong. And just uh, help us to love and lead our families well. God. We ask these, these things in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Uh, if you would,